0: hebrews chapter 4 and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 and before we do let's pray and ask god to bless the reading and the hearing and keeping of his word this morning our father as we do every week we lift up our voices we cry out to you that you would bless your congregation for we are your people you are our god and O lord we pray that you would speak and that you would make your people to hear the voice of the good shepherd You have said, Lord Jesus, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I call them by name, and they follow me. And we pray that you would stand as the shepherd and the king and redeemer of your church, and you would minister to the souls of the men and women and boys and girls present this morning. Father, be present with us as we hear your word proclaimed, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. It was not mixed with faith, is a better translation, with those who heard it. For we who have believed to enter that rest, as he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God indoors forever. Well, I have lately been reading a lot of articles on leadership, a lot of secular articles on leadership, because I want to become a better leader, and I have a lot to learn about leadership. And one thing I've noticed in high-profile secular leadership magazines, Forbes magazine, other business and financial magazines, there's a recurring theme In most of the articles I read, and it is a call for leaders to rest. It is a call for leaders to rest. We live in the most overworked, frenetic, hyperspeed community and nation in the history of humanity. One of my mentors in one of his sermons once said, I used to think the United States would go out with a nuclear fallout. Maybe it would be some sort of terror attack from internal terror attack. But now he says, I'm convinced that maybe we'll just fizzle out in hyperspeed. Traveling as fast as we can, we'll just burn out as a nation. I think it's interesting because in every one of those secular articles, there, there's now this tendency to say, even if you're not religious, you need a Sabbath. They'll actually use the word. Even if you're not a religious person, you need a Sabbath, a sabbatical. That's where we get our word sabbatical from. And they'll say that it's, it's absolutely necessary if you're going to be a good leader to take a, a Sabbath. Now, I am not here to talk about leadership with you at all this morning. I'm here to talk about entering into God's eternal rest that the Sabbath day pointed forward to, which is heaven, which is glory, which all of us need. It is rest from sin. It is rest from the guilt of sin. It is rest from the burdens of sin. It is rest. It is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the writer of Hebrews in one of the most magnificent theological sections in all of the scriptures I'm sure as we read it you, some of you may have said I don't understand this this doesn't make any sense we're going to get there this morning he sets out for us a theology of rest now that's important because you know some of you will know the the great early church theologian Augustine in his confessions has that really famous statement that you have created us for yourself and our souls are restless Until they find rest in you. You have created us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they find rest in you. And so, what the writer of Hebrews is going to do now is he's setting before his hearers this promise of rest. He's saying that the world to come of which he's spoken. He's saying the world to come that has been subjected to Jesus because he became lower than an angel and, and he was made man and he suffered and he defeated the devil and he took possession of the new creation and in his resurrection, Jesus brings about the new creation. He is the first fruits of the new creation and the writer is going to say later in the book there's a city that has foundations and that Christians are moving there. If you're a Christian, that's where you're going. You're not staying here forever. You may love Richmond Hill, you won't be here forever. If you're a Christian, you're going somewhere. Christians are progressing just like Israel was traveling through the wilderness. They were going somewhere. They were heading to the promised land and and yet they didn't make it. And the writer is concerned that the hearers listening to his sermon might not make it either. Now, let me say this at the outset. He is not saying you cannot have assurance of your salvation. What he is going to say, what God the Holy Spirit's going to say, is that if you think, well, you know, I've trusted in Jesus, I don't need to worry about stuff, I don't need to be faithful in church attendance, I don't need to be interested in being under the ministry of the word as often as I can. I don't I don't need to read my Bibles, I don't need to be seeking the Lord in prayer, I don't need to be fervent in putting sin to death, that you may not make it and that you probably aren't converted. That's what he's gonna say. And notice first he gives an exhortation, it's very severe. No, there are parts of the Bible that don't make you feel good. This is one of them. Hebrews 4, notice what he says. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear. Actually, the text opens with those words. The English translations heard us. It actually says, therefore, let us fear. Since a promise remains of entering the rest because most of Israel didn't enter it, and many, many, many people who profess faith in Jesus don't enter it. And the writer says that we are exhorted to take serious, weighty attention. We are to give serious, weighty attention to the fact that many didn't enter it. There's still a promise of entering it, but many who thought they were going to enter didn't enter. And so he says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The reality is none of us are in heaven. That's the reality. I know that seems so prima facie obvious, but it's actually profoundly important for us to realize I'm not in heaven. I'm sitting in a rented building in Richmond Hill, Georgia. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that there is a danger lest some will not enter it. Now, remember, he's writing to the covenant community. He's writing to people who profess faith in Jesus. This letter is being written to the church. And notice what he says now. He, he again, unites the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. In verse 2, he says, The gospel came to us just as it did to them. The gospel came to us just as it did to them. They had the gospel. We have the gospel. They were a Christ-centered church. We want to be a Christ-centered church. But... The message they heard did not benefit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in those that heard it. Now this is always the most dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing um, for any of us is to have a head full of knowledge. I fear the knowledge God has given me sometimes because having a head full of knowledge is not the same as having a heart full of faith. You can know... All of the Westminster Confession of Faith, backwards and forwards, shorter, or larger catechism. You can you could have huge, massive portions of Scripture memorized, but if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting Him in your hearts, knowing Jesus, you will not enter God's rest. Uh, Bruce Walkey tells the story of a uh, rabbi he met when he was studying um, Hebrew in Israel. He lived right by him in an apartment, and Walkey was. Studying at the Hebrew University, I think, to translate the Proverbs for his commentary, and and he had befriended this rabbi, and one day he realized this rabbi could just rattle off the psalms in in Hebrew, could just rattle them off, all the psalms, all the vowel pointings, just had, and and Walkie said, obviously, you've memorized a lot of the psalms. How many have you memorized? And he said, for three hours, we sat down in his apartment, and he sang the entire psalter in Hebrew, beginning to end. And Walkie said, and that man was an atheist. That Jewish rabbi was an atheist. It doesn't matter how much scripture we have memorized. It doesn't matter how much theology we know. The word of God has to be mixed with faith in our hearts. And here's the reality. Our natural inclination is unbelief. Our, our natural, what you do by nature is unbelief. That's our natural, that's my natural inclination is Don't believe God. My natural inclination is here's God's word. I don't believe that. Even if I don't say that, I live that. You can live unbelief. You know, the Puritans used to often talk about practical atheism. I've always found that very searching, that you have intellectual atheists, but everybody, every one of us by nature are practical atheists. Every one of us say no God in our hearts. And so the writer's saying, listen, fear, take this seriously. There is a day of judgment coming, not just a day of rest. And we need to make sure that we are going to enter into that rest. We need to take it seriously. He's going to end this exhortation. Notice verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. That word means agonize. It's the same word about Jesus in the garden when he was agonizing and he sweat drops of blood. It means strive to enter the rest. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute. I thought you said, everything we need in Jesus by faith alone, and now you're telling me to get to work. No. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that it takes the utmost diligence and attention to your soul, the care of your soul, the response that you make to the word of God, whether you will end up in glory or not. And that you are to be as diligent as an Olympic athlete in the care of your soul. And notice now he unpacks this exhortation. That's the first part, the exhortation. Now he unpacks it. And what he's going to do is he's going to give the most amazing theology of rest that anyone could ever give you. It's the most amazing theology of rest. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, listen, there's this danger, there's a danger of not entering the rest. But there's a rest that still remains. There's still hope that you enter that rest. There's still hope that you go to be with Jesus forever. There is still a promise that you will enter that rest. God has not yet brought the world to its termination. He has not yet brought judgment. He is patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. He has been very long-suffering, and there's still a promise of entering that rest, even though Israel didn't enter it. That first generation, they didn't make it into the land, and that was a picture of them not making it into heaven. And what the writer is going to say is, there's still a promise. There's still a promise. Now, what he's going to do, and it's amazing, you have to pay attention, he's going to go back to creation to prove this, and then he's going to go to the conquest of Canaan with Israel, and then he's going to go To the end time rest, the eschatological, the goal, the end time, goal, heaven, eternal rest that the creational Sabbath and the conquest of Canaan were to point forward to. He goes creation, conquest, consummation. Now notice what he does. He says here in verse, he says in verse 3, he quotes Psalm 95 again. He says, where God says, as I swore in my wrath, they're not going to enter my rest. That sounds pretty harsh. That sounds like the door's shut, door to the ark's closed, nobody else can get in. It's done. They're not going to enter my rest. Sounds like we're all in big trouble. That was written by David in Psalm 95. They're not going to enter my rest. And then he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, what he's saying is that When God created a seven-day work week, and it's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple. One of my favorite theologians said, if you can count to seven, that's pretty simple, you can get this theology. If you can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you can get this theology. That God created a seven-day week, and six of those days he worked and created, and then he rested. Not that he needed rest. He did that for us. He rested. He rested. And Adam was to, by analogy, work six days and then rest on the seventh day. And the rest that God rested from was the rest of a hope set before Adam that he could enter into something better. Our first father was given the prospect of entering into glory where he would never fall. Had he obeyed God, had Adam entered into that rest, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to come and die We wouldn't live in a fallen world with sickness and sin and misery and a bunch of horrible things happening all the time. Had Adam not disobeyed, he would have entered into that Sabbath rest. So God was always holding forth a prospect of being confirmed in glory with him. He was always holding before Adam in that seven-day rest that there was something higher and better for Adam to enter into. Now, we know Adam failed. Adam didn't enter into that rest. Adam disobeyed God. Adam brought all the guilt, all the corruption, all the shame, all the misery, all the sickness, all the filth, all the disorder, all the marring and twisting and corrupting of everything in this world through his one act of disobedience. And he lost that rest. And it's because Adam lost that rest that Augustine said, our souls are restless until we find rest in thee. It's because Adam lost that rest that the second Adam came and he said, come unto me. And I will give you rest for your souls. Interestingly, he said that on the Old Covenant Sabbath. Now, as you look at the history of theology in the Bible, in Israel's history, what you see is that God is step by step trying to restore in his people's mind that he is going to still redeem a people and allow a people to enter into his rest. And when he redeems Israel out of Egypt... And he brings them through the desert, through the wilderness. And he brings them to the place where he's going to bring them into the promised land. And God has said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place to rest. Turn over to Joshua 1 quickly. Joshua chapter 1. You'll see the connection between the promise of rest and the land. Notice there. Somebody's going to have to help me find this verse. I thought it was verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land. I'm giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you just as I promised Moses. And, And God actually says in this chapter, in the Hebrew, that he's given Israel the land for rest. That Israel was to rest from their pilgrimage, they were to rest from their journeying, they were to find a place where they would dwell with God. It was, a little, it was to be a little picture of heaven. The nation of Israel was to be a little picture of heaven. It was a tiny down payment on the inheritance of the whole world for the people who know Jesus. God had redeemed his people, he brought them to the place, but they didn't enter the land. Why didn't they enter the land? Because they didn't believe. How do we know they didn't believe? They disobeyed. They grumbled. They complained. They doubted. They sent spies into the land, though God had said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be yours by grace. I am going to give it to you as an inheritance. They sent spies into the land, and 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. That's unbelief. That's not believing the promise of God. The spies said, we don't care if God said, we'll give you this land. We don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God has said. Moses, we don't care what God has said through you. We don't believe. We can't take these people. We can't enter this land. And I think the writer is telling us in Hebrews 4, by analogy, about Israel not entering that rest because Israel was ultimately saying to God, There is no eternal rest. You are not the Redeemer, you are not the God who saves. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to the slavery of sin. And every time we doubt God's promises, we are saying, I want the world. I want sin. Who is God? Has God really said? That's every time we act in unbelief toward God's promises, we are saying, who is God? Who is the Lord? Can the Lord help us defeat these enemies? Can the Lord bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey? We want to go back to Egypt. And the writer of Hebrews is bringing out this grave warning. He's saying, listen, that they didn't enter. Quoting Psalm 95 again in verse 5, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I know there's a lot of theology here, so just track with me. Someone in this congregation may say, but Israel did go into the land. The second generation did go in. Moses didn't take Israel in, but Joshua did. They crossed the Jordan. They went into the land. And at the end of Joshua, in chapter 21, it says God gave them all the land that he promised them. And so the writer's argument may just fall apart. It it could just fall apart. And and everything he's trying to prove about this promise of entering this heavenly rest falls apart. And it was really about the land of Israel. And they got it. And notice, notice what he does. I love this. In verse 8, he says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, what's he talking about? Psalm 95. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Joshua took Israel into the land, David wrote Psalm 95 and said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness because a promise remains of entering his rest. And ultimately what's happening is David says it was never about the land of Israel. It was never about the land. It was always about entering glory through faith in Jesus Christ. It was always God's goal to bring His people to glory through faith in his son. Now, it's interesting that verse 8 is really telling us there is a greater Joshua. There's a greater Joshua. Why mention Joshua? He's told us Jesus is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses. Now what he's saying is he's better than Joshua. And what the writer is doing is he wants you to fix your mind on Jesus, and it's absolutely fascinating that Jesus Christ dies on Friday, lays dead in the tomb, having finished the work of redemption on the Old Covenant Sabbath. He lays dead on the Sabbath. He rests from his work, and he opens that rest for us who believe in his resurrection. It's absolutely fascinating important that you get that that jesus lay dead in the tomb on saturday the old covenant sabbath because he had provided sabbath rest for his people and what god requires of you is that you trust him all god requires a simple childlike faith in jesus all he requires he's done the work he's entered into that rest he's the second adam he takes us to the sabbath rest that the first adam failed to do That's what he's telling us. He's the greater Joshua who takes us into our eternal rest. He is better than everything. He is our Sabbath rest. That's why Jesus could stand and say, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. And let me say this this morning. If you do not believe on Jesus, you are making the biggest and most horrific mistake of your life. You will never recover. I thought about this. There are lots of things I get anxious about. Something bad happens in my life. You have that feeling where your your heart just kind of sinks into your stomach, thinking about the consequences. We usually recover from those things. Hard though they may be, we do generally recover. I mean, Donald Trump's recovered from bankruptcy like eight times. Need I say more? (laughs) Um, You will never recover from not entering God's rest if you reject Jesus Christ. And again, God is speaking to a church who had the gospel, who didn't believe. And so this morning, I'm pleading with you that you would believe on the Lord Jesus, that you would feel the weight of your sin. You know, when Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls, The idea is that your soul doesn't have rest and you know it and you feel the weight of your sin, you feel all the wrong things you've done, you feel the guilt, you feel the shame, you feel, you know that you're not a good person. I listened to one of the founders of our denomination last night at a conference and powerful testimony, he's probably in his late 70s or 80s now and um, listening to him saying, I remember the first time I felt conviction of sin. It was like nothing I'd ever felt before. Um, and I thought back to the first time I felt conviction of sin and the weight of sin and the need for rest. And you know what? God is a God who wants you to enter that rest. That's the beautiful thing. God holds out the prospect this morning, and he says, strive to enter Now, if you strive to enter that rest by faith, God is not going to say you're not going to enter if you have faith. God is not holding out promises that are uncertain. That's the beauty. Though the warnings are severe, the theology and the promises are weighty and certain. There is a certain promise of entering the eternal rest of God. And you know what? I dread the thought of any of you not entering that. I dread the thought of my sons not entering it. I dread the thought of anyone I meet not entering God's rest. And God holds out this morning this prospect. And He says, Listen, from creation to the conquest of Canaan till the day Christ comes back, it's always open to those who will believe the gospel. And every day of your life, you need to be believing the gospel. Have you ever thought about why the Bible keeps saying over and over and over, I write this so that you believe? I write this. It's not just an introduction, like you've never met Jesus here, I write this so that you believe for you today are you believing in the promises of God no your spouse can't answer that for you J.C. Ryle wrote a scathing little pamphlet I'll never forget it was called Lot's Wife and it really um, presses home that here's this couple God delivers out of Sodom but she's unbelieving even though she has that temporal deliverance, she, she doesn't believe, and Lot can't believe for her, and she perishes. Your spouse can't believe for you. Children, your parents can't believe for you. You can't believe for each other. Your friends can't believe for you. You have to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. But there are enormous promises. Let me say this as we close. The greatest thing that helps me when I take the weighty warnings of Scripture, and they weigh on me. If they don't weigh on you, I feel very, very sorry for you. If the warnings of scripture don't phase you, I feel very, very sorry for you. They weigh on me heavily. They are severe warnings because we're not yet there. But whenever I start to fear or have assurance shaken, I meditate on the promises of God. I meditate on the promises. Jesus said, the one that comes to me, I'll never cast out. If you come to me, I'll raise you up on the last day. He who believes in me has passed from death to life and does not enter into judgment. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What the law could not do, though it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whoever believes him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fires... Do not be afraid. I am the Lord your God, your Redeemer. I will bring you to myself. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will bring you to myself that there, where I am, there you may be also. Promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. And all you have to do is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll enter that rest. You'll enter that rest. If you don't believe you'll make the biggest and worst mistake of your life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to this church. Let's pray. Father, we do feel the weight of the warnings of Scripture, and yet the glories of the Gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have finished the work of redemption. We thank you that you entered into rest when you died, and when you rose, you opened the way for us to enter into your rest through faith. Father, please cause your word to be mixed with faith in our hearts. Pray for each one in this room, young and old. We pray, Father, that you would do a great work of grace and redemption. Open our eyes to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. Make us to feel our need for the rest that only you can give. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.